0: And it's a privilege for me to be here, and to be here foremost, to serve the Word of God to you. And you would be helped if you would have a copy of God's Word open to what we just read, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I want to look at the bait stanza, the second stanza, verses 9 to 16. And let me read again for us just verse 12, as the center of this stanza will be the focus of our meditation. Psalm 119 In verse 12, it is written, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as I pray and we ask for his help together. Our great and glorious God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would Open our hearts that we might receive what you have given us for our good and joy in you. Unite each heart here to fear your name and unite even us in the fellowship that is ours by faith in your Son. And we pray, our Father, that as your word goes forth, you would be with the one who expounds it, that he would be both bold and careful as you require. And we ask that all who hear would hear with diligence, united in faith, that we would be built upon the sure foundation of your Son, and that he might be honored and glorified, not only in our meditation, but in our lives that spring from it. We ask our Father you would do this for your glory in Christ Jesus and in the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What is the greatest threat facing the church today? If you go to a Christian conference, that question will be asked during the Q&A. Several years ago, when Carl Truman was asked that question at a conference, he said, without hesitation, internet pornography. It is a $4 billion a year industry. Its influence is observable in how our society is so degraded. Images that a century ago would have scandalized the general public are now used to sell potato chips to it. And also, even consider the mental health studies, how... Loneliness, depression, anxiety, isolation, and more studied effects from regularly viewing illicit material. Bathing your mind in immorality makes you sad and worried. How do we navigate such a Corinthianized society? Well, most of us are likely familiar with the answers here in Psalm 119, aren't we? Especially verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The path of purity is kept by walking according to God's word. And further we have in, in verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You study, you meditate, you memorize the word of God to fight the temptations that come from without in the world. And of course, all of this is completely true. But when these statements are disconnected from their setting, Scripture quickly becomes a collection of moral principles. Really no different than other religious moralist systems or even modern self-help strategies. And most importantly, this is not how Scripture presents itself to us. Psalm 119, you may know, is that epic acrostic poem in the center of your Bibles about the Bible. It's God's word about His word. And at the very start, it establishes a relationship between the word of God and the God of the word. Glance with me back up to verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. You notice that? How parallel to seeking God is keeping His testimonies. Or what about Verse 10 in our stanza, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. There it is again, walking according to the commandments of God is paralleled with seeking God himself. Or we could move later to verse 68 of this psalm where we read, you are good and you do good, teach me your statutes. Beholding the goodness of God uh, we, we come to ask him to teach us, which is very close to verse 12 here in our stanza. Blessed are you, teach me. It may seem painfully obvious to say this, but, but bear with me, I'm going to say it anyway. We cannot really talk about the Bible without talking about God. And not only is the Bible how we come to know God, but knowing God is how we come to understand the Bible. You follow that? And it's so critical we don't separate that. Scripture, the canon of books, written by the apostles and prophets, superintended by the Holy Spirit to be God's very breathed Word to us, exists because the God, God who is, is the one from whom all things exist, and that includes His Word. And the one for whom all things exist, which again includes His Word. So it's not just true, that what we believe about the Bible impacts what we believe about God, which is absolutely true. It's also true that what we believe about God will impact what we believe about the Bible and how we receive it. That is to say, the more we grasp of God's greatness and glory, the more we will grasp for His Word to us and the goodness of it in giving it to us for his glory. It is apparent to anyone who's honest and paying attention that we live in an immoral age, in an immoral society. And we also see growing biblical illiteracy even in the visible church. But the answer, beloved, is not just enforcing more moral discipline in the principles of God's word. We must also follow the biblical pattern and give each other and the church, a truer vision of God and His glorious perfections that will reinforce our need of and our delight in the Word of God itself. That's the logic of this stanza. The stanza here, the emphasis in the center, and that is common with Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew logic, it worked more like a mountain. You ascended to a peak and you descend from it. So the emphasis is in the center here. in verse 12, "Blessed are you, O Yahweh. O Lord. The God who is is perfectly blessed, has perfect joy in himself. And what the Holy Spirit communicates to us in this portion of His Word is that our desire for God's Word is rooted in our delight of God's joy in Himself. Our desire for the Word of God is rooted in our delight of the joy God has in Himself and the joy we have by being brought to Him by faith in Christ. And as we understand the divine perfection in verse 12, I think we'll find that the rest of this stanza, and more importantly, the place of Scripture in our life as God's people, will beautifully unfold for us. What I want us to do is look this evening at just two aspects of this stanza the wonder of our blessed God and the word of our blessed God. And we'll spend the majority of our meditation there on verse 12, the wonder of our blessed God. One thing I can guarantee about everyone here this evening without exception, is you want to be happy. That's true, isn't it? Everyone here wants to be happy. Our nation was founded in its declaratory document at pursuing happiness as one of the foundational goals of our revolution. Have you ever wondered why that's the universal disposition of everyone? We all want to be happy because the God who created all things out of nothing is happy in himself, and he created all things, including us, that we would be happy in him. To be blessed is a state of happiness or joy. And God's blessedness was common in an ascription to God in your Old Testament and a motivation for praise in Israel. For example, when David led worship and prayer in 1 Chronicles 29.10, he prayed this, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, The God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. So King David led Israel in prayer in adoring God with the fact that God is forever blessed. But considering God's blessedness today in the church is often missing or overlooked, and and we're not happier for that. We might call God's blessedness a summary attribute. It's something that concurs with His glory you want to think of it like this, God's glory is the outward manifestation of his perfections. And the inward experience of God's perfections by God is blessedness. It's joy. It's happiness. In other words, if you could, as it were, ask God, what's it like to be God? He would say, joyful, happy, blessed. God's experience of the perfect knowledge of himself is blessed. So the old Baptist John Gill said this, the attributes of God center and terminate in his blessedness. What that means is that when you've said all you can say about God's perfect ineffable being, you you are led to this conclusion. He's blessed. He's joyful. He's happy in himself. That's implicit here even in verse 12 as blessedness is ascribed to who? To the Lord That is to Yahweh, God's essential name, which reminds us of all the way back to Exodus 3 when he answered Moses' question that I am who I am, the great I am, the God who is, Yahweh, is blessed. Now let's think about that a little bit longer and think about why all the perfections of God, the Lord, center and terminate on him being blessed. God says, he is. He told Moses, I am. Not I am this with other principles, nor not I am that as though he was in a class of peers. God is independent. He's self-sufficient. The 10 cent word we hang on that is aseity. It's Latin, "asse" from himself. It just means God's independent. He doesn't derive from or depend on anything else. So he's blessed. Our happiness depends on Conditions, our favorite team winning, our blood sugar being at appropriate levels, or even more consequential, what's the first verse of this psalm? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. You notice that? It's always that way for us. God is just blessed, period. In need of no conditions outside of him for his blessedness. We are blessed when certain conditions are met because we are dependent creatures. We need things outside us to have contentment within us. But God, the independent creator, is blessed. Period. And apart from, before, and beyond anything else in creation, God is happy in himself. He's blessed. He's independent, and so he's blessed. But God's not only independent, He's also, if He is the God who is, and He is, He's infinite. God is free of any and all limitations of the creation that He brought into existence by speaking. God is eternal. He transcends the succession of change we call time. God is immense. He's infinite in space, a pure spirit without spatial limitation. He's perfectly present in His whole being at every point in space. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. God is capable of all and every good consistent with his perfect will. And because God's infinite in all these ways, he's blessed. Even in your happiest moments, what do you know? It's a moment. It will end. How much of our happiness is because something is just out of what? Reach. If I could have just grabbed it. If I could have just been there. If I could just get there. Or how often do we say in resignation, I can't do anything about that. Incapable. But God is boundless. Psalm 145 said His greatness is what? Unsearchable. There's no circumference where God ends. There's no containment that holds Him in. There's no chronology that God is subject to. His blessedness is from everlasting to everlasting. In fact, God's blessedness never started. It never began. And his blessedness cannot cease any more than he could cease to exist, which is impossible. But God's not only infinite in these ways, he's infinite in knowledge. He knows all that will fully happen in time, all that could potentially happen, and he fully knows himself. John Owen said that God has perfect love of his own perfections. And the only one who fully understands all God's perfections is God. But we're often disturbed because what? We forget. The common joke in my family is whether dad can remember the birthdays of all the four children. I assure them all, I was there. I just don't always remember on the calendar. And we make decisions in ignorance and suffer for it. We are anxious because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even fully know ourselves. And often the more self-aware we become, the more discouraging it can be. We learn stuff about ourselves and we know there's more stuff to learn. We are arrogant because we believe false things about ourselves. And we despair because we believe false things about ourselves and we're far too critical. But God... Has perfect knowledge of all things, even his own perfections, and so he's perfectly happy always. God is independent and infinite, so that must mean the God who is is also immutable. He's unchanging, he's the perfect eternal spirit, so it's impossible for him to change, there's nothing for him to improve, and there's no way for him to get worse. So he's blessed. But do you know what one the number one searched questions online is? How can I change? We have potential we do not reach, and that fills us with regret. And we lament the change that we cannot change, which is getting older. We say youth is wasted on who? The youth. When you're young, you have energy, but very little, if any, wisdom, so you energetically do dumb things. <laughs> When you're old, you have wisdom, but less energy. So you think about what you would have done differently when you were younger. Your sorrow as a child for you children isn't your sorrow if I could only be older. And your sorrow when you're older is if only I could be younger again. But God never changes, never has reason for change, can never change. So he remains blessed forever. God is immutable, which means he's also impassable. He's without passions, so he's blessed. How often is our happiness stolen by our ever-shifting moods? Our emotions are subject to our circumstance, even our blood sugar levels. And so our emotions are even inconsistent with circumstances. Do you ever feel a certain way and you have no idea why? Again, John Gill reminds us this about God. There are no affections and passions in God to be wrought upon or worked upon so as to disturb him. He is unchangeably the same and so most blessed forevermore. The Lord, the God who is, is independent, infinite, immutable, impassible, and so he's also impeccable. When God revealed his name to Moses, how did he appear? in a flame of fire in a bush that was not being consumed, inaccessible to Moses because he marked out holy ground. Our God is holy, 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 so he is happy, happy, happy. Sin disturbs us and depresses us. We live with the regret of the things we've done. We fight the evil we still desire. And even in those rare moments of peace, it's often ruined by the thoughts and the war that's still within us. But no evil, no wrong, no regret, no temptation has ever darkened or diminished the happiness of God. So he's blessed. And if God is, then all we've said about him is not what he has, but who he is. And so the God who is independent, infinite, immutable, impassable, is also irreducible. That is, he's simple. God is simple. He is unlike us who are caused and composed of parts. God is his perfections. They're like rays that reflect his ineffable brilliance of the glory of the only God. And that means, beloved, that God does not have goodness or joy as though it's something he could lose He is goodness and joy itself. He is blessed. The Puritan Edward Lay described God's blessedness like this. In himself and of himself, God perfectly enjoys himself, and this is his perfect happiness. He lives a perfect life, abounds with perfect virtues, sets them at work himself in all the fullness of perfection, and in all this enjoys himself with inconceivable satisfaction. Another theologian, Benedict Pictet, wrote this. Who would, not God call, who would not call God happy? Who needs nothing, finds all comfort in himself, possesses all things, is free of all evil, and filled with every good. And that right there is good. If you want a brief definition of God's blessedness, he is free of every evil and filled with every good. And so he's happy. He is independent, infinite, immutable, impassable, irreducible. So he is blessed. Now, when we talk about these things, some worry that what we're saying about God's joy in himself might portray him as aloof, uncaring. Some have even suggested inert. But this is really to misconstrue what's almost too plain to say. When God revealed his name, he revealed it as what? A verb. I am. And not a noun. God's not inert. He's the fullness of life. In fact, it's impossible for God to be more alive than he is. All that lives, lives in whom? In him. He's the fountain of life and goodness. Uh, David in Psalm 36 verse 9 says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This, at the very least, demonstrates how often the blasphemous portrayals are given of our great God in pictures or in comments like the man upstairs, which is ridiculously blasphemous. God is the fount of all joy and happiness and life himself. And God hasn't only revealed himself as infinite life, but what did he also do? He gave us a name that we can call upon It's rendered here Lord in our English Bibles or Yahweh or the older rendering Jehovah. And why did God give his people a name? So that we can seek him. So that we can commune with him. So that we can call upon him. And his perfections that we just briefly summarized establish the basis for our communion with him. It is the imperfections of change and the inconsistency that we have as people... That makes our relationships more difficult. Friendships fray because you're not yourself anymore. You change. We withdraw because we don't have enough to give to someone else. God never says any of those things. He is. He is blessed. So you can always seek him. And he is with us always to the end of the age. But maybe other questions arise when we consider God's blessedness here in Scripture. Do you wonder whether or not God is aloof, but rather, is it good for God to be blessed? What about when you're struggling with depression? Is it good to know that God is happy when you're not? Or what about our world of horror that we don't have to describe? We know about the suffering of our life and our world. Can it be good that God is perfectly happy in himself when our world is so often a veil of tears. It's here, beloved, that we need to remember not to measure the divine by the standard of men. When you're sick and a friend comes over to sit with you and to pray with you and says to you, I'm sorry, you're sick. It, ma- it makes me sad. That's comforting and that's helpful because you know your friend is doing all that they can do, sympathize and love you. But let me ask you this if your doctor came over and you were desperately sick and hoping for your cure, and he sat on your bed and said, I'm sad you're sick and I'm sitting here in solidarity with you, you'd want your copay back. <laughs> because what you want from your doctor is not sympathy and solidarity, you want help and relief and hopefully healing. So to pull God down to become more like us so that he, quote, shares our pain in himself like an impotent man, it's not really good news. It can't bring us happiness. It would actually only reinforce our helplessness. We depend on God, not for some symbolic solidarity like another man, but as the source of joy and the power to save us back to joy in him. Listen, beloved, if God is not every perfection that we've listed, then he's not God and he's not blessed. And if the creator and source of all things is not infinitely happy in himself, then happiness doesn't exist and joy is not real and this that we are living through is as good as it gets. Fred Sanders said this, if God's not happy, nobody's happy. If God's not the fountain of blessedness, then God doesn't have blessedness to give us or to bring about. But wonderfully, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, God is blessed. So that means, beloved, joy is real and joy is really possible in God. We sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity God has joy in himself as triune Hugh Martin said the blessedness of God subsists in the everlasting relations of the ever blessed three in one God's eternal joy as the father who loves the spirit who the son who is loved and the spirit who is love spread to create goodness and joy in creatures The Puritan Richard Sibbs described it like this God's goodness is a spreading goodness. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was, but God delights to communicate and spread his goodness. God's blessedness abounded to create and to covenant with our first parents that we would gain rest in his blessedness forever as creatures made in his image but we know the story our parents instead rebelled and we've been a race of sinners in a world of sorrow ever since scripture summarizes it for us in Romans 1.25 like this we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever but God the son assumed a human nature incarnate as the Christ, who in Mark 6, 14, 61, is son of the blessed. And he took on the finitude of human nature to become a man of what? Of sorrows, that we might be in him a people of joy. The son blessed forever became a man. And Jesus wept and entered our world of sorrows. And even further, lived to die and to suffer our curse, because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The Son of the Blessed became a man to become our curse and did so that our sorrow would not be eternal, but temporal, that we would be brought by Him to eternal joy in our great God. In salvation, God gave us the greatest joy possible, Himself, and by faith and union with Christ, We return to commune with the source of any and all true happiness, with God. And we can say with David in Psalm 16, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Martin Luther said, When I possess Christ, I surely possess everything. For he is pure righteousness, life, and eternal blessedness. The Apostle Paul says this is the standard of sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 10 and 11, he says the standard of sound doctrine is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What we preach in our churches, what we bear to the world is good news that God has glorified himself and revealed his blessedness in the Lord Jesus and our return to him by faith in Christ. We in Christ wonder now and hope in our blessed God And that has everything, beloved, to do what we do with his word. And that's what we see second. Let's see here in this stanza the word of our blessed God. With the view of God's blessedness at the center, how do you feel like you should respond? What about the end of verse 12? Teach me your statutes. I want to be happy. Teach me how. The God who is a fountain of life and joy. I want to know you. Help me to know your word. Verse 9, the beginning of the stanza, I'll guard my life by your word. And I will, verse 10, seek you by your commandments because purity is a path to joy and to happiness and to communion with the blessed God. Help me know your word that I might know you Even as the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for what they shall see God. And then your word, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. You could translate the word translated stored as treasured. I've delighted in your word. I've treasured it in my heart because it is the disclosure of the eternally blessed God for my joy. That I might know him. So it's not sin against him. Because when I sin, I do not bless him and I mar his blessedness from my view. And so I store your word in my heart because I want to be happy in you. And I want to glorify your name. Sin, in essence, is an r- irrational commitment to sorrow. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. We teach our children At a very young age, if you don't obey your mom and dad, your life will be hard and sad. Feel free to use that. It's not copyrighted. But what we want to communicate very early on is sin is a commitment to sadness, to sorrow, to despair. And the psalmist here knows that. The assumption behind verses 10 and 11 and storing his word and not wandering from his commandments is the potential that the deceit of sin is always there. And so active, intentional measures must be taken. I must take his word seriously that his joy is not robbed from me through the deceits of the evil one or my own self-deception And so God's blessedness is always before us that we would treasure his word. And then what we treasure, what we delight in, verse 13, we tell others about. We do this, don't we? What we're most happy about, even if it's just some simple thing we bought at Costco, we tell our friends. And so if we treasure his word, verse 13, with my lips, I will declare all the rules of your mouth. I will proclaim it to others. And verse 14, we are delighting in the way of your testimonies as much as in riches. When we proclaim and share the testimony of God's word, it is the overflow of the delight we have in the God of the word as we share his word with others. We found the source of joy and treasure and happiness more than riches. The God of the word is infinitely delighted in himself and has called us to himself in Christ, so we spread his word to others that you might have joy also. One of the perhaps most demonic lies of our day is that sinful abominations are euphemized as gay. Do you know what gay used to mean? Happy. But it's not happy, is it? And we know that. But we don't rightly portray our God or his word if our response to the lies of the evil one in this world is only indignation and anger. We not only know what's lies, we also know the path of joy. We know infinite delight and our tes- his testimonies are what we are privileged to share. And our testimony and our witness to our world so committed in its self-deceit is not just the judgment of God, which is rightly on the world, but also the joy we have in our God. And the happiness with which we have in him and in his rules. And our great privilege, beloved, is to testify to the world that despite the lies of the devil, our God is not a robber. He's a giver. He gives joy. And he gives happiness. And when God says no... When God says that's abomination, when God says that's wrong, He's not stealing your joy. He is trying to keep you from endless sorrow. And He is calling you to Himself. Our God is a giver. Again, Psalm 36, you give them drink from the river of your delights. In God is an inexhaustible fountain of joy like an ever-flowing river. And that's our word to the world as God warns us, as God instructs us, as God corrects us, even from our most innate desires, it is that we would have our thirst for joy and happiness quenched in him. In a world of muddy bogs of sorrow and sadness, God's precepts are a firm path to happiness. And in our delight, verse 15, we meditate on his precepts. That word meditate means mutter or repeat. It's verbalizing the Word of God. It's, it's chewing on it, if you were, turning it over and over again. And notice what happens in meditation. Verse 15, I fix my eyes on your ways. Meditation leads to vision being raised to God. Scripture consistently and regularly uses the image of vision to represent our sense of and our knowledge of God by faith. Paul will describe this later in 2 Corinthians 3:18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, the context the apostle is talking in here is all about the reading and preaching of the Bible. Verse 15 of chapter 3 is whenever Moses is reading. and Paul goes on in chapter 4 to talk about what we proclaim and the open statement of the truth. As we hear, read, or preached the word of God in scripture, we are beholding the glory of the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ by, by faith and being transformed by our knowledge of God through his word from one degree of glory to another because the Spirit gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and shines it in our hearts. And how does Paul describe this ministry? In chapter 1, verse 24, of the same letter, we are fellow workers for your joy. We proclaim the Word of God, we read it, and we preach it, that you might be happy in God. As by faith you hear his word, you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus and are transformed into the same image and increase in happiness in God. By faith now the word comes to us and we behold the glory of the Lord who is joy. and We increase in joy until one day hearing and faith become sight and seeing. And we have what we call the beatific vision of our blessed God. And it's called beatific because it gives perfect blessedness and rest to all who have it. We will finally meet the end of our existence that great day, and we will have joy in God forever. A conversation I have regularly with the members of my church. Pastor, I'm struggling with fill-in-the-blank sin. Can you please help me? How can I be pure? And I'll often ask something like this. Well, let's, let's talk about your commitment to corporate worship and the means of grace. Let's talk about personal prayer, and family prayer. Let's talk about your, your meditation on the greatness of God. T- tell me about what you think about God when you think about God. And oftentimes I get quizzical looks. Wait a minute. I, I need help with this struggle. I say, yes, but you're wandering is not disconnected from your worship. In fact, they are entirely connected. Beloved, the sins that bother you the most are not just a matter of getting the right technique to get rid of. They are rooted in your meditation on the blessedness of the God of the Word. Purity of life is not just a matter of what you avert your eyes from. It's what you fix your eyes on. And is your contemplation and vision filled with the glorious perfections of our ever-blessed God until the day that we see Him as He is and we are blessed forever in Him? He is the cause, the source, the fountain of all blessedness and the promise of it forever. So we say, as at the end of this stanza in verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word Because it is the means of my joy in you. After having a panic attack on national TV, news anchor Dan Harris explored different spiritual paths in order to deal with his anxieties and depression. Until he focused on the modern trend of mindfulness and meditation. And Dan Harris wrote a bestseller. The title of it is 10% Happier. And he said that's what meditation did for him and that's about all you can expect in this life is to be just 10% happier. Our society, beloved, is so irrationally committed to its impurity and growing comfortable with the sorrow it brings that 10% happier is seen as enough. Beloved, in Christ, our hope is not just a bit more happiness it is perfect satisfaction and joy without end forever it's the promise of fullness of joy and pleasures forever the joy of endless worlds in God let us seek him then as we guard our hearts as we diligently seek out and study his word because it's the word of the blessed God that we would be happy in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for condescending to speak to us, to lisp to us as a nurse to our infants that we might know you, coming to reveal yourself in your Son, our Lord Jesus, whom we love, who has lived and died for us, that we would have life in you. We pray now, our Father, that our life would be truly life abundant in your Son and that we might know it and grow in it. Help us treasure your word, delight in it. May we study and memorize it, that we might remember and meditate on you and have joy and be able to fight the lies of the devil which promise happiness but lead to endless sorrow and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we ask that we would have joy in you, and we pray for each church represented in this gathering and for each Christian that we would spread the joy of the gospel of your Son to all whom you give us opportunity to share. We ask, our Father, in all these things you would be exalted and glorified until the day we commune with you in joy everlasting forever. We pray this, our Father, in Christ's holy name. Amen.